Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolfe, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. So a host of things happening in the news this week. Uh, Peter, uh, what's your top of your grab bag of topics for discussion? Well, we do have a grab bag. It's a basket full of things, obviously, with what's going on with the January 6th hearings, which are now slated to continue, perhaps not just for a month, but perhaps, you know, years as they're comparing them now to the Watergate hearings, which took years. And with that, there are implications of what happens at the midterms, what happens in 2024, where does all that go, who are the players, what are their strategies, and we can consider, if you will, where all that might be going all this hour on More Perfect Union. Did I do that right? Did I make that sound like I was actually on the radio, Chris? You sounded great, yes. Ex and, thank um, you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll, I'll dive in. And and talking of 2024, um, we saw President Biden coping with a bout of COVID this month, and which reminded me of his mortality. And raising the question uh, for me, uh, could, should he run in 2024? Um, so another topic for us to dive into as well. So um, Chris, let on me... that topic, I think we should also talk about COVID for a few minutes. As the epidemiologist in the station, I think it is important for our audience to know that the you know we're we're not over, even though we all are acting as if it's over. So it I will, still I will walks take among that, us. That, that, mm -hmm. That's a very still, good reminder, Dr. Lino. Yes. Thank you. It still skulks in the corridors, doesn't it? Ah, so, not skulking. U.S. is number uh, one once again. Everybody, uh, please uh, put your masks on for the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're all a bit too close. <laughs> so oh, yes. you're watching us in gallery view, I see. <laughs> Doctor, thank you for reminding us of that because uh, I got struck down on my recent trip to Ireland and was um, in uh, COVID prison for a few days in Galway uh, in the hotel in a room. So um, got to enjoy dealing with the illness, which wasn't too bad. Um, and, but the worst thing for me was the bureaucracy with mm. Irish health authorities, the um, US's own health authorities, and the State Department having a completely separate set of rules and regulations. So it was a bit of a nightmare, but we survived. So um, actually then, and Natalia, why don't we start with that? Give us your thoughts on um, where we're at and how people should be responding. Chris, you know, in Massachusetts, we're not seeing the increase that we're seeing in other parts of the country, in New York and in California. And, you know, you're, you may have seen in the news that a lot of places are reinstating mask mandates. Uh, which are, of course, controversial, but I think it is important for people to recognize that masks do protect us. They protect ourselves, they protect our neighbors. And so 
I think we are in a place of heightened concern. This new variant BA5 um, is very you know, transmissible. And what people need to understand that it is so transmissible because it is it has mutated to get around uh, the immunity that we already have, whether it is you've been infected before or you've been vaccinated and boosted, this variant is not you know, being caught by those things. Still vaccines are really, really effective at protecting us from ending up in the hospital and with serious COVID, but they're not as good at pr protecting us from getting COVID. So you know, we need to do everything we can and everything we've been talking about, spend time outdoors, ventilate, uh, make sure the windows are open if you have guests, reconsider having like a huge indoor party. Um, as kids are, you know, in camp, try to make sure that they're, they're, you know, an outdoor camp spend, you know, we're lucky that it's the summer, but I am concerned that we know very little about long COVID, Chris. So even if we're not seeing these increases in, in death, you know, spikes, the fact is that many, many people, including young people are suffering after a bout of COVID. So there's so much unknown that I personally am doing still everything I can to protect myself and my family. It doesn't mean that we're not doing things. I am, for example, traveling to Greece um, for the first time since the pandemic because my five-year-old twins will now have been vaccinated and, you know, which what they weren't eligible to before. So we are taking more uh, calculated risks, but they're calculated. I'm still not eating indoors with my family every weekend, but we eat outdoors all the time at restaurants. You know, we love that. And so, I do want people to be aware. The last point to say is that, you know, we know a lot more about what masks work. The high quality N95, KF94s, those are the masks that work. You know, cloth masks are really, you know, they do a little bit of work, but mostly if you are gonna mask to protect yourselves, wear a high quality mask. And if you can't afford it, reach out to groups like Project N95. They're working with us to distribute over a million free masks. We're working with five groups across Massachusetts to get free masks to communities. If you can't afford a mask, you know, reach out, reach out to Pete and I will make sure that we get you some masks. So I've still oh. been using the old surgical masks. So you're on a scale of one to 10, <laughs> how effective is that at, at least protecting others? Surgical masks are better than cloth for sure. Uh, if you're in a super crowded place and other people are not masking, you, to protect yourself, you should wear, uh, you know, a KN95 quality mask. But if it's a, you know, you're walking in and out of a shop and most people are wearing masks, I use the surgical masks too. Like at the university at Harvard, that's what you get. You walk in, you pick up a surgical mask. They do have high quality ones, KN94s that you have to ask for. Uh, but if I'm like on a plane or if I'm, you know, going into a restaurant to get an order and I know that everybody there is unmasked, I wear, I wear a higher quality mask when everybody else is unmasked. So it's a, it's a two, two quick questions that occurred to me there. Um, so I wouldn't know where, where do you get a good KN95? Just Google it on Amazon or, or look for it. So project N95 is a really great, like nonprofit. They are, um, a clearinghouse for the mask. They do their own testing. And, um, so that's where I get mine. There are a few reputable, uh, American based, you know, uh, manufacturers. That's the challenge, Chris. It's unlike other masks. You can't walk into like a CVS and get one. So it's all about ordering them online. I'd be happy at a next show to sort of give give a rundown of where to reach them. But where I, you know, I rely on Project N95 website, um, as well as sometimes some of the hardware stores, like, you know, a Home Depot could yeah. carry um, the 
some some types that were you know used by painters and other people. But you just yeah, I was lucky to find there. a stash at the start of the or halfway through the epidemic uh, in my painting drawer. I was like, oh look, <laughs> N95s. So I shared them with our uh, vulnerable neighbours just to make sure they uh, had to access. Great. Any uh, Jeff politically, how uh, how viable are mask mandates? Well. Uh... You ask me uh, that question uh, seven days after the president of the United States uh, came to Massachusetts to talk about climate uh, change. And uh, I unfortunately was uh, in the throes of negotiating the final changes on the climate bill. So I could not go to see the president. I was so disappointed that I could not go. Uh, And then the very next day we learn uh, that the president had COVID when he was in Massachusetts. So uh, people were saying, see, somebody was looking out for you. You couldn't go and uh, you didn't come back with COVID. Uh, You know, it's something that, um, you know, in all seriousness, it's something that uh, certainly uh, is not over. And uh, we're taking a very cautious and measured approach uh, to make sure that uh, it's not something that uh, repeats itself. The happy news is because of all the great work uh, that has been done in this area. When people get COVID, um, they're not getting terribly sick. They're not uh, having to be hospitalized. They're not having to be on ventilators. And that's a tribute to um, all of the great uh, science and innovation that uh, has taken place. Uh, much of it uh, right here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with some great research folks uh, and I'm sure that's uh, Natalia's space with uh, with all of those uh, great epidemiologists and scientists. And uh, hats off to you folks for really uh, turning the corner on this. So uh, politically happy that uh, we did the right things and happy that uh, people are surviving, even if they do get it. And keep in mind, the, the president of the United States is as old as he is. Uh, kept on working while he was, you know, dealing with uh, his COVID illness. Uh, he had to be um, quarantined. Uh, and uh, if I'm going to be quarantined anywhere, I would love to be quarantined in the White House. But, uh, you know, he was able to keep his schedule uh, going. And um, he's back uh, at work today uh, and back out and about. And that's an incredible story. Uh, in comparison to what we were seeing in 2020. Thank you. And uh, thanks for mentioning the climate bill. I I wanna come back to that. Uh, But first, uh, Natalia, I think a lot of people are saying, well, thanks to the vaccines and and the healthcare procedures that we've learned in terms of dealing with it, why should I worry uh, about getting it anymore? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be fine. Um, and that's that's what I hear a lot. So I don't know, what, how do we have those conversations with people? What 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 should they be concerned about? Is it themselves you know, or is I, it? I mentioned earlier long COVID. We don't know enough yet about the long-term. And we do know that a few people, a few very unlucky people, but unfortunately we don't know what it is about them are facing really long-term symptoms that are completely debilitating. Like they can't get out of bed. I've heard of you know young mothers who are, you know, unable to take care of their children anymore. So it's not, it's not a completely risk-free. And actually what we know is that the more times you get infected, the higher that risk. And, you know, Jeff, while I agree with you, it was wonderful that the president was able to work. One thing that epidemiologists are starting to hypothesize is actually that rest is really important to prevent long COVID. So if you can, if you have the privilege, you get COVID, 
you're feeling tired to actually rest, drink water, rest, take a break, that the chances of fully recovering and not having long-term symptoms, we suspect there is a connection. So I do want to send the message that, yes, the president worked through it. He is the president of the United States. He has a lot of responsibilities. But for the average person whose job allows them to take a break, they should take a break. And for the average person whose job doesn't allow them to take a break, we as a community should say, why is that? You know, why are we not allowing people to take five days when they're sick or if they're taking care of someone? And so I think some of the conversations to make this, you know, the new normal will require us to talk about workplace protections. How do we take care of each other? How do we ensure that people have, you know, the income to say isolate for five days and not say, oh my gosh, I know I have COVID, I'm feeling fine, I'm just going to go into work because I have to go into work and in work reinfect everyone or on the way to work. Like it requires mm -hmm, a level mm -hmm. of communal uh, accountability that I worry that once we say, oh, it's no risk. I have heard people uh, talk about stories like, you know, they go to the hairdresser and they say, I, I have COVID right now, but I'm sure you don't mind. And it's like, wait, you know, you're exposing me. Why, why do you think I wouldn't mind? Like that assumption that nobody minds is going to be a challenging one. And while I don't want to paint the, you know, negative sort of story, like monkeypox is the new thing. And for monkeypox, you need to isolate for a month. So if we don't think about, you know, our social, sort of our social safety nets, like what do we do when people are sick? You tell them isolate, but they don't have the means to isolate or, you know, we're up for a really big uphill battle if we don't think about the conditions in which people are able to, to you know, follow precautions. So Again, uh, you know, we're in a wait and see. It looks like the U.S. government is going to, you know, the WHO already made it a, an issue of international concern, monkeypox. It is something that at the moment is impacting mostly uh, our gay communities, but that's not, there is no reason why it won't spread more broadly in the future unless we're able to contain right. it as soon Tra as possible. So, tragically, we've yeah. seen that before I when think, people say it's just isolated to one community. Yeah, I, th I think that yeah. one of the things is we have a very egocentric view of the world, many of us, and we tend to look at it as I, I won't be infected, I this, I that, rather than we and our, our family, our friends, and so on. And we don't realize the secondary implications of trying to be responsible um, on behalf not only of ourselves, but the people who are close to us. Right. That's that's why I started the, the the flu vaccine often gives me makes me ill, but I get it anyway, just because uh, concern for elderly relatives and the vulnerable in the community. And the same reason I got the shingles shot, because mm. uh, my mother got it. And then if she once she's had it, she's le more likely to get it again. It's going to be more serious. So I thought, mm -hmm. OK, so it's not for me. It's for her and people like her. So it comes sadly then to uh, a big issue that America has, which is privilege. Uh, so um, unfortunately, you know, economic status and um, whoever your health insurance is, is going to be something that's going to have, have an impact there, which is um, not a good place for a society to be in. We have health islands. Opinion. I think we have health islands. It appalls me that the degree of uniformity across the entire country is so uneven with respect to health access, insurance policies, coverage, uh, and so on. And it, I'm just sort of nonplussed about it. I, yeah. I feel fortunate that I live in a state that it tends to be more proactive and more responsible with respect mm -hmm. to uh, healthcare needs. And not just healthcare, but also uh, climate. Uh, Jeff, uh, I understand there's a climate bill going through the state house right now. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what its goals are and 
Is it sure. a good thing? Sure, certainly. It's um, It's been an exciting thing. Uh, something that in my committee is telecommunications, utilities, and energy. That's where uh, these issues reside. And for the past 14 months, uh, we have been putting together uh, a climate bill. We released it from the committee in January. Last fall, did a 120-page uh, single-spaced uh, report with uh, graphs and charts that... Uh, I anticipate uh, that all my fellow panelists here today have uh, thoroughly been briefed on and read and uh, took copious notes. Uh, we can talk about them. But uh, then uh, it went to the House floor in, in March of this year. The Senate took it up and did it in April. And uh, from May 5th up until uh, last Thursday, I was negotiating uh, as one of the uh, conference committee leads with uh, three senators and three House members, and uh, we finally achieved a compromise. It actually happened while uh, President Biden was here uh, in Massachusetts. In a summary, it's a 96-page bill, so I'm not going to go through it section by section, but it essentially beefs up the work that we're doing in the offshore wind industry. Uh, Massachusetts is home to the most robust wind in the entire contiguous United States. It's 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. And uh, it's our goal to harness all of that wind and turn that into uh, clean energy uh, that's enough to power every home and business in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So uh, it's new. Uh, Massachusetts is the first state to break ground on a utility scale size uh, offshore wind farm. And uh, we are poised to be the leader in the United States on the offshore wind industry. So this bill does a lot to bolster that with uh, tax credits, job credits, uh, workforce development programs, and uh, funding to help uh, port infrastructure. We, uh, New Bedford uh, is particularly well suited for this. And Salem, believe it or not, uh, is going to undergo a revitalization and become a key port uh, along the East Coast for the offshore wind industry. So offshore wind, obviously a big component of it. Uh, we also are doing some transmission planning. How are we going to get all this power from the turbines into the grid? We need to modernize our grid, which is uh, designed for power generation moving in one direction. Uh, but uh, Nowadays, power moves in multiple directions and we need to modernize the grid to uh, you know, make sure that we can most efficiently uh, use all of that energy. We uh, close some loopholes in the solar space so that we can bolster our solar energy as well. And we did a lot for uh, transportation uh, in terms of uh, moving to electrify vehicles, providing the infrastructure that we need to charge up all of these vehicles. We want our public transit system to move to uh, electrification. We're doing scoring for buildings and uh, allow, uh, or requiring buildings to report their uh, emission score. And uh, since Natalia uh, is uh, from Brookline, I'll give a shout out to one provision that's uh, in the bill. It's going to allow 10 communities uh, to uh, do an experiment, a pilot project of banning uh, fossil fuels from any new construction or major renovation projects 
I know Brookline passed that at uh, town meeting three or four years ago, and they were unable to do it previously. Uh, and this legislation uh, will give them an opportunity to do that. So it's a whole bill that's designed to uh, embrace and foster a robust source of energy, which we identify as offshore wind, uh, and to create all of the energy that we're going to need to accommodate all the electrification that we're going to do. Last year, the legislature uh, passed a bill called the Roadmap Bill, setting uh, goals for us to be uh, net zero by 2050. That's uh, 28 years away. In order for us to get to net zero by 2050, there are a number of steps we have to take. So this latest bill is called an act driving clean energy and offshore wind because now this is how we're implementing the measures that are going to allow us to reach the goals that we set uh, with the uh, legislation last year. That's it in a nutshell. There are a lot of pieces and I'm hoping that we can do a future show uh, devoted to this topic so that people have a real uh, good understanding. The, the status of it is it passed both branches uh, last Thursday. Governor has 10 days to decide what to do with it. So uh, he has until 11.59 on Sunday, July 31, uh, to decide whether he's going to sign it, whether he's going to send it back with amendments or uh, do nothing. And uh, if he signs it, it becomes law. If he does nothing, it becomes law. If he sends back amendments, then that, uh, that uh, forces the legislature to take uh, some further action. We can accept the amendments, we can amend the amendments, or we can reject the amendments. And then uh, the governor will have an additional 10 days uh, to decide. I'm confident uh, that uh, given his interest in all of these areas that uh, he will sign a bill uh, in the next uh, week or so. And I'm looking forward to being right by his side when he puts that uh, pen to paper because it's not over until that pen is on that paper. And I wanna see the scribbles being made and, uh, and get, yeah. a, get one of those pens. Quick, quick question, one of the uh, deciding factors might be, does he have to give up his limo? <laughs> uh, yeah, or he, he, uh, is the state gonna move to uh, electric vehicles for its uh, limo fleet? I, I'm a firm believer that uh, if we as a state are mandating that other folks should do that, do these activities, then, then we should lead. And uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, I've been driving an electric vehicle since 2012. And um, I firmly believe, and I have pushed for more uh, charging infrastructure in the state house um, buildings. We do have uh, charging facilities and uh, the governor actually issued an executive order last year mandating that uh, we go net zero with any new projects that the state undertakes. So uh, yes, we do believe we have a duty to uh, do these things. And uh, I think we are showing leadership uh, in moving in that direction. Thanks. In the long run, Jeff, is there consideration, and unfortunately, I didn't do my homework, so I didn't get a chance to take notes on the bill. But in the long run, is could, there uh, a could the record please reflect uh, that uh, Dr. Walker Jones did not do his homework, uh, and uh, that should go into the the, the record books? Nor did I. I'll, I'll confess, I, I didn't either. Sorry. Uh, but is there a social conscious? 
sort of uh, a view toward the future. I mean, as we look at renewable fuel and sources of energy, one of the things that has always concerned me is that uh, the consideration that the energy costs should start to go down, uh, and especially in those communities where there is a need, and that the uh, that the ultimate goal here is not to set up a profit-making company uh, for uh, to sell energy, uh, but to basically help us to transition out of fossil fuels, out of the rise in energy costs, um, and to stabilize those costs for our citizens. Your thoughts? Well, um, first of all, excellent points, and, and thank you for bringing it up because that uh, uh, essentially what we um, demonstrate through this legislation is that climate change can be done to bring uh, clean, renewable, and cheap energy to Massachusetts, and at the same time, reap economic benefits in terms of job creation and, uh, and lower rates. We do certainly know that uh, we can't keep going on a trajectory where uh, people get priced out. A couple of uh, provisions on how we address folks in communities that uh, may not have typically benefited in the past. Uh, that pilot project that we talked about uh, banning fossil fuels from communities, one of the requirements we put in place is we didn't want just the rich communities to be able to do this. We said, if you want to participate in this program, you have to first demonstrate that you are compliant with 40B and that you have affordable housing. And that's going to help us make certain that everybody benefits from uh, the provisions of the bill. Another uh, important component uh, is the diversity, equity, and inclusion language that uh, we included in this uh, piece of legislation. We actually require uh, contractors who are working in this space to have a uh, DEI program director who is going to uh, make certain that everybody benefits from uh, the economic pieces that are uh, provided for in the legislation. And uh, uh, I heard a lot from folks on that, and uh, we took it very seriously and really put in some strong language uh, requiring uh, that uh, be in place. And, and finally, uh, environmental justice communities um, really got their attention um, or, or were given great attention in the 2021 roadmap bill. And we follow up that uh, in the, the 2022 legislation by recognizing uh, that, uh, first of all, there, there are environmental justice communities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and any steps that we take have to uh, recognize these communities and uh, provide opportunities for them to participate. And uh, the best uh, example would be uh, on the purchase of electric vehicles or the rental of uh, or leasing of electric vehicles and electric vehicle infrastructure. And uh, so we're requiring all of this to be available in all communities. We've increased the amount of rebates 
that are available for people to purchase uh, these vehicles. And we also take note of the fact that price parity is finally here with regard to internal combustion engines versus uh, electric vehicles, that uh, they are now uh, comparable in pricing. On top of that, uh, with gas prices where they are today, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to run an electric vehicle than it is an internal combustion engine. So we've made some great strides and progress, still a lot of work to do, but I just want you to know that all of those elements were taken into consideration in putting together this bill. Yeah, my background's in international relations, so it also strikes me that uh, it would be hugely important for the America's national interests to become uh, energy independent with uh, renewables as well. Uh, so even a conservative hawk should be able to see the benefits uh, from that point uh, of view. I can assure you that, uh, and if you look at the remarks that I delivered from the floor, every time I spoke on this bill and on this topic, I reminded folks about Russia uh, invading Ukraine and making threats to the European communities uh, about uh, fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really put Europeans in a very difficult position and uh, just was, you know, one of the factors that I, I would identify and say, hey, we can't let this happen uh, here in the United States. It's, it's not only good and clean renewable energy, but it, uh, it lessens our dependence on a foreign entity uh, that can be led by some someone as ruthless as uh, Vladimir Putin. Right. Good for the planet, good for the country. Um, so with the, the planet running out of time, the other um, person who uh, is uh, facing the challenge, as we mentioned, President Biden has COVID, been dealing with COVID. And um, that raises one question I'd like to throw at my co-host, Nick Remesong, could or should uh, President Biden run again in 2024. Well, nothing like being tossed under the bus. I'm I really. I have to go there. run for a phone call. Uh, yeah. Do you mind yeah. if I? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, Mike. Just when, kidding. When was, I'm hanging yeah. around. No, no. But at, just before we started recording, I was asked. But the question was put out there, and I had a rather emphatic no. My emphatic no was not. It, it's it's highly qualified. I believe that we need someone who can draw the Democratic party. Let's start with that, just the Democratic Party. I think we need someone who can draw the Democratic Party together because there are too many factions, too many fissures. And I don't think that President Biden at this time really can affect that change. We're being, you know, the, let, me, let me also add that I think the last, my favorite president of the, of, in my life was Johnson. I think Johnson enjoyed what he did. He was immensely happy with wielding power. He knew how to wield power because he'd come up. Now, President Biden has come up through the ranks also, but Johnson was a he was an unusual case. He was a very ex exceptional case in the uh, in this terms, in these terms, uh, master of the Senate. He was the master of the deal. He was a true master of the deal. And he just enjoyed doing what he did. And I think that part of that was because he he just really was concerned about others. I think he had a true concern for others. And again, I'm not saying President Biden doesn't, I'm just giving you points of Johnson. Back to President Biden, I think his age does have to come in as a factor. It just has to come in as a factor. I mean, I'm older now than I ever was before, obviously. It's just, 
you need a little more time to process things. And I'm not saying that good uh, considered thought on any subject is, is bad. I'm just saying that it, it, it sometimes takes you a little while longer to wrap your head around the basics. I don't see anyone coming up that's a real standout that I think could step into as the, the, the Democratic Party. I don't really see anyone on the Republican side either that stands out. I'm sure they do, but I don't. And I just feel that we need a change. Uh, we've still got the same people fighting the same old battles. And the, the interpersonal play isn't there anymore. There's no, there's no crossing the aisle in Congress any longer. It's, it's, been, it's, it's just ground to a halt, virtually ground to a halt. So there's there's for me an interesting observation in what you're mm -hmm. saying. Um, there's this this uh, management vector, I'll call it, or leadership vector. And it states that you have to figure out if you want to be liked or if you want to be respected. They're not the same thing. In fact, you could put them at polar opposites of a of a linear uh, continuum. When you consider that, I think our current president, God bless him, uh, puts a big emphasis on being liked. The former president didn't care about being liked, but he knows that there are a lot of other people among his constituents and beyond that are forced to respect him for his power. So those are two extremes. Um, I think LBJ really found a way to land in the middle. He played a full contact game and he understood the power of being respected, blended with the power of being, call it admired, liked, whatever. But he knew that he needed to engage and he knew that he needed to, to really put pressure on the things that he wanted. Um, and the current feedback, I think, among the Sunday morning pressers is that these days, Democrats would like to see their party engage in a more full contact game to get things done, uh, albeit that they're somewhat hamstrung because of the, the uh, hair thin majority that they have in the Senate. Natalia, Michael, any thoughts on uh, the 2024 candidate on Democratic ticket? Yeah, I, I'm somewhat torn because, one, I think it's a little premature, and two, to talk about Joe Biden. And uh, some of this centers around uh, the rights talk on whether or not he is competent, both mentally as well as physically, to run. And I'm not buying that. I think Joe Biden is still... Uh, has all of his full faculties. I think he's. I think he is for his age, rather robust. But the idea. No, I would agree. That, I think he's very confident. Uh, you know, but the idea that at this point in time, Democrats are, I think, looking for an alternate to him, uh, as I said, is somewhat premature. However, that doesn't mean. And here's the part where. Uh, Nick and Chris, you, you know, I can uh, I can agree. I think Democrats at this point are uh, in disarray, not necessarily because of Biden, but because we keep trying to focus on national issues when issues, I think, amongst us as Democrats are much more localized and regionalized. And unfortunately, what uh, uh, as uh, our colleague Jeff was just talking about Massachusetts' ability, for example, to deal with the energy crisis is not the same as Louisiana's ability to deal with the energy crisis. Louisiana, which is very uh, dependent upon fossil fuels, uh, their whole economy 
as well as their social and political structure is built around fossil fuels. So one would think that state is actually in decline or will be in decline at some point as we look for alternative energy sources. So their ability to, uh, and the Democrats in that state, uh, to sustain their population is different than Massachusetts. And unfortunately, I think, you know, for example, I don't, I don't really have the same kind of view of, uh, of Joe Manchin as some others. Uh, I think he is intentionally uh, using his ability to be a power broker at this point to his advantage. That's politics. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, it's not working for all of us as Democrats, but hey, he's a Democrat and he is in a state where given the politics of that state, uh, you know, he's very popular and he gets the job done. So again, I think one of the things that we miss as Democrats is that unification in this instance may be uh, to speak to the audience that's in front of you and not to speak and, and and try to bring together an audience that, for the most part, really doesn't exist. Uh, that is this national unity now mm-hmm. uh, uh, around a single political issue. Now, having said that, let me give you the exception and the area, again, where I think we're in disarray. A woman's right to choose, and I said this in uh, some of our other programs, is not the sole issue, but my goodness, it is absolutely the focal point of what all of us ought to be talking about regarding a loss of our freedoms. And if it can happen to 50% of our population in the way that it has in the last few months, just think what can happen to you know, the small, smaller marginal groups the LGBTQ community, uh, Blacks and people of color in this country, uh, the poor, uh, the needy. It seems to me that those who are in power can literally start to segment us off and take away things that we thought were enshrined either in the Constitution or in our rights. So, uh, you know, again, the issue of Joe Biden, I think, is is number one. Talking about 2024 is a little premature, but I don't think Biden is the issue. I think the issue is that we as Democrats uh, keep trying to find that singular voice and that singular perspective. And I think that's misguided. No. And again, I wasn't talking about a singular issue. I was talking about someone who can bring the party back together whether it be on a, and again, I agree, the, it's the thin edge of the wedge coming in and with regard to our own private rights and the diminution of those rights. Well, there is uh, some good news. Ah. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, the Democrats have concerns about Biden's continuing a second term, but it also should be noted that Republicans, likewise, really in the majority, don't want Trump to run again. I'm and always so, 
I'm always a little hesitant to believe that because yeah, uh, so am I. Yeah. I don't and, yeah, and, and I'll and believe I think it when I see the, it. The, my journalistic instinct is to remind the audience that, of course, we are trying to be objective here, and uh, whether the news is good or bad <laughs> is uh, entirely up to you yes. to decide. But you know, exactly. beyond all that, because I wanted to mention the fact that uh, they say that I'm not talking about people in Congress. I'm talking about rank and file people who claim to be Republicans indicate that more and more of them, given what's going on with the June with the January six hearings and so on believe that it would be unwise for President Trump to try to re-up for another term and that they would like to see someone else run. That said, the person who managed a breakthrough is Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer struck a deal on climate relief, uh, climate uh, bill with Manchin. And at this point in time, they are now starting to move forward on effective uh, climate regulations. Uh, Manchin says he's on board for quite a hefty sum. And so this change of heart that he's orchestrated with Chuck Schumer is encouraging and that the Democrats might actually end this term or this the, the first half of Biden's term. The Democrats might end the first half of Biden's term with major legislation actually being passed, mm. which would be one in the wind column for them. So that is something that is actually starting to move. We're recording this program on a Thursday morning and. That information came as of yesterday uh, in the New York Times. Would it be too much to want a woman on both both parties, like Nikki Haley for the Republicans? Maybe you know they have they have strong women, and you know to be mm -hmm. to be a woman, especially with what Michael talked about, sort of this existential threat and attack on women. I think it would be a nice message if our presidential elections were uh, two women on the Republican and Democratic. Hey, party. we're going to having you said that, that on the state level. Yeah. Uh, Natalia, because uh, it's looking good for Maura Healy. And in the entire history of Massachusetts, we have yet to elect uh, a woman as governor. And uh, if things hold as they do today, uh, you're going to see that happening. So there's some hope there. I don't know uh, on the national level. We tried it in 2016. Didn't work out so well, but uh, we have to try again. Well, and speaking of that, uh, of, on the Democratic side, Natalia, do you see Kamala Harris as a viable candidate? I think, I think if if um, Joe Biden decides not to run and gives her opportunities to to shine and to step up and to be, you know, it's difficult. I I don't know, I, and I'd love to hear from others as Vice President to not want to outshine your president. Um, I think she has. She's charismatic. I think she's smart. Um, again, I'm not sure if how it will go for her, but I do think there are so many competent women, and mm -hmm. she's one of them. She is one of them. Um, so I don't know. Any any I, other thoughts on other? Another thought I think would be no. that oh, sorry. Amy Klobuchar did pretty well during the last primary as well. She so can't rule her out. I always look back at history for precedents, and um, my thoughts turn to the Roman Empire uh, and the emperor. The position of emperor was not a hereditary one, as people often um, falsely assume. Uh, but what would happen is the emperor, where it succeeded, would anoint a successor. So there was no dispute as to who would take over. And when they failed to do that, um, as with Mark, the great Marcus Aurelius, otherwise great, um, you end up with chaos and division and weakness. And uh, I'm reminded I'm you know open minded about this, but you hear catastrophic warnings about 
the direction that some people see the Republican Party moving in. And one would argue, if you follow, subscribe to that point of view, that the stakes are perhaps higher than they have been in any election since perhaps the, the Great Depression. So I just want to throw that out there uh, to get people's reactions. Um, is this moment one that requires uh, that kind of anointment for the Democratic Party to rally around uh, earlier than otherwise in the normal election cycle? No, I definitely feel that there is a need for the Democratic Party to start moving some someone or some a selection of, of people forward at this time. I don't know how that's accomplished. I'm not a politician, um, but there needs to be, much like Kennedy, Kennedy is the one who put Obama forward and really got behind him and pushed. And we saw how successful that was in terms of no matter how you feel about Obama, that pushed uh, President Obama up front in the party and really gave him a boost and a movement. And it has to be done early. I don't think I really don't think that too, this is too early to be thinking about the 2024. I think that where we are today, we have to think more long term and act on it sooner than uh, rather than later. Well, it would seem to me that there the consideration for a national level politician. Um, and that's what I mean by I think it's a little premature because the, one of the things that history has shown us is that you can peak way too early if you uh, if you sort of uh, you know take this stargazing or uh, or shooting star kind of approach. You really have to build yourself up to that uh, ultimate, four-year election. And at this point, I don't think uh, for sure Kamala's not ready. Uh, I'm not sure if there is someone on the horizon that's sort of creeping in that direction. Um, and I think there are some telling elections that are coming up. For example, the election for Senate senator in Florida, where uh, I think it's Demings, who is, I think, a really strong candidate, will give us some type of litmus test as to whether or not uh, a woman can achieve what I think is, is sort of singularity in the, uh, in the face of a, uh, what the Republicans think now is one of their strongholds. And it also seems to me that there is a need for more female politicians, we're going to see, hopefully in Massachusetts even, a possibility that a majority of our state constitutional offices might be held by women. Uh, that not only would be a first, but I think that would also be very attractive for our state. And yet at the same time, Nick, there is a need for us to recognize that politics in this country um, is really off the rails. Uh, the tribalism, uh, the idea that nothing is getting done, that there are all kinds of, uh, I think, red herrings that are being thrown at us. For example, let me shift topics here, for example, in terms of what I think some politicians should be dealing with. Uh, the inflationary effect of the increase in car prices I've discovered, again, from just a small bit of research that that's actually artificial. 
It was not created by any kind of what I would say natural force. For example, all of the uh, Toyota regional dealers have colluded to increase the price of their cars anywhere between three to four and a half percent, not because the value or anything that went into the car increased, but simply because they can take advantage of the fact that consumers are willing to pay it. Now, again, economically, in terms of our capitalist system, that's their right. And it's hard to legislate around that. But at the same time, we get hit as a population with the uh, the fact that, oh, inflation now is at the greatest rate that it's been in 40 years. Well, again, the analysis here has to be someone has got to stand up and say, but that inflationary rate has been artificially manipulated, which is part of our capitalist system. And that's the part that many of our citizens just don't understand. We think that there is some kind of governmental uh, problem here when really it's a matter of not the government, but it's a matter of the fact that businesses can collude with one another and they can artificially raise those prices, which then brings me back to the question that I asked Jeff earlier, that as we look at legislation, are we being socially as well as futuristically responsible when we are changing the rules of the game inside of a particular energy or business sector? I think part, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you. The, the element of prior restraint among vendors, corporations, individual groups is, it, it's dangerous. And, it's, it, it, and you're right, because people just accept it because they will twin it with something else that says, here's why we have to do this. They don't have to do it because their profits were already over the, over the moon. Uh, but they do it because they are more, they're more willing to collude with their, those who they're in business against and with, because that way everybody on that level profits, whereas the public suffers. So there has, yeah, I think you're right. There has to be some consideration given to how do we handle this on a, a, a local basis? And then how do we take that local handling of it and advance it through to a national level? I'm not talking about, I don't know if it's legislation that would be the best thing to do, or if it's just a matter of awakening the press and saying, look, get this out there, get it out there constantly and stay on it. Well, part of it, I think, is that the press uh, contributes to the problem because they oh, try no. to. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that's, Say it ain't that's so. hard. Yeah, I know it's hard news for us, uh, you know, Joe. Uh, you know, but yeah, it is so. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, in our sometimes in a zeal to try to be fair, we will characterize things inappropriately. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any uh, any kind of need for us to. Uh, not investigate, for example, or to really call it for what it is, why the Justice Department is being so slow in trying to uh, indict or bring charges against those people who were responsible for January 6th. 
And when I look at that, especially as a person of color in this country, um, you wouldn't believe in the barbershop, um, it's always, well, if that was one of us, we would have been indicted and convicted by now. Sure. Yeah, that's and the way people view their lives. It's a person yeah. of privilege. It's a person uh, who has been in power, and they have a whole different justice system. I would love at some point, and, uh, and I would hope that we would be able to get uh, Reverend Barber to come to talk to us. Uh, the uh, the uh, co-director of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, because when we look at some of the uh, disparities with regard to our system of economics, as well as our system of justice, you know, there are literally two different systems that people interact with. And yet the media doesn't acknowledge it. You know, we keep what, for whatever reason, uh, you know, we try to say, well, it's balanced, but maybe there are uh, small little fault lines. No, it's two different systems. And we've got to really start to fess up and call it for what it is. Uh, but then again, that goes back to the politics because there are all kinds of systems of politics. And when uh, I'm watching Georgia, for example, now, uh, and when we talk about, and here again is why I think it's premature to talk about 2024, you know, here it is in 2022, let's take a look at what the impact and the change of all of these voting laws are going to be coming up this fall. Um, and I think the Democratic Party, again, is disorganized to where we should have been hammering this. We ought to be organizing at the local level around trying to get people to work around uh, these atrocities of suppressing the vote. Uh, and yet here we stand, uh, and I'm already hearing reports of people who are not going to go out and vote because um, the states have made it tougher. So before we get to 2024, I, I again say, let's deal with right now. Let's deal with the here and now. Just a couple of thoughts I want to throw in. Um, I'm gravely concerned with, you know, we talk about the media and we talk about the press. Let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, we are losing local press uh, for all intents and purposes in the United States of America. And it's really becoming nationalized. And uh, I see it. Uh, our, our biggest local paper in our area is the Milford Daily News. And there has been a seismic shift in what that publication covers now. Uh, they used to send people to all of our local meetings uh, and cover our local uh, government and politics. They do none of that uh, anymore. And uh, you, you see they don't even have reporters uh, left covering local issues. And there's a, a seismic shift. Uh, with the Milford Daily News purchased by the owner of USA Today, you're seeing more USA Today content in the Milford Daily News than you are of any local content. So that's very concerning as, as we move forward. And uh, I'm going to share with you one of the books from my summer reading list, uh, because I think it goes to a topic that, uh, that uh, we have at least... Uh, touched upon this morning, and it's uh, the book is called Fighting Political Gridlock, 
how states shape our nation and our lives. And whereas we've seen a great deal of inactivity on the federal level, uh, we are seeing robust activity uh, at the state level. And that's, uh, you know, whether it be uh, education, uh, voting rights, criminal justice, and climate change, these are things uh, that uh, states are moving into. And uh, this uh, author from, uh, he's a member of the Virginia House of Delegates, uh, wrote, this, uh, wrote this book on how our states are actually shaping our nation and lives. And we should, we should be uh, embracing that at some points, but we should also be concerned about that uh, in some points because uh, uh, some of our states didn't do a good job 240 years ago in, uh, in shaping our nation. And uh, we had some problems that uh, actually resulted in a civil war. Uh, in 1861. So that's on my summer reading list. Uh, perhaps we can uh, talk about that at some point, but uh, very interesting <laughs> discussion. Right. Thank Chris. you. Well, another more perfect hour has flown by and we have to say goodbye until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. Uh, for me, Chris Wolf, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and uh, Representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay and my co-host, Nick Rimmersong, Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.